You're listening to the Washington Hospitality Industry Podcast, your primary source of information related to the hospitality industry in Washington State. Thank you so much for attending our Washington State and National State of the Industry. For questions during the presentation, please use the Q&A feature in this app. Uh, just click the Q&A button and type your questions in using this feature. This has been one of the most difficult times of our industry. As, as hoteliers, we know how to fix problems. We have countless phone numbers of contractors and people that can repair any issue. If we don't have the staff, we work the shifts until we do. There, there isn't a job in our hotels that we can't do. But we don't have a phone number to fix a pandemic. There isn't anyone to call when our world and industry is in crisis. However, I can say we've been able to rely and call on the Washington Hospitality Association. I've never been more proud to be a part of this association. They have worked tirelessly to keep our doors open and advocate for our businesses and employees. Through communicating, uh, communicating to our membership about grants and opportunities to uh, keep our businesses afloat, and through our, our public relations, who have been letting people know that we are people with families that have been suffering. Government Affairs has done an incredible job and they have stopped additional restrictive regulations from further strangling our businesses. The Washington Hospitality Association has been fighting for you, fighting for your businesses, and fighting to keep your lights on. And now, please allow me to introduce your leader and CEO of the Washington Hospitality Association, Mr. Anthony Antone. Hey, Ron, thanks so much for that introduction. I felt like I was coming onto a basketball court, which is a guy who's only 5'6". You know, I've never been introduced at an NBA game before. So glad to be here, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Ron, uh, thanks so much for all your work as chairman. Um, I don't think people realize the, the hundreds, if not thousands of hours the volunteers put in to really support the industry uh, for the good of the industry. And Ron, we can't say thank you enough and, and we will keep saying it every day. Uh, while we're saying thank you, I want to also thank our sponsors. Um, uh, we've had three uh, greats. We have three great sponsors today who are not only sponsoring today, but they've been incredible partners um, through the pandemic and, and prior in trying to help us create the best hospitality climate in the world here in Washington State. Let me start with uh, our credit card program partner, U.S. Bank. Uh, big thank you to U.S. Bank and Elevon for their support of this event and their continued uh, program partnership. Uh, through our program, through our co-program with U.S. Bank and Elevon, our average member is saving $3,400 a month. That is a real win. Those are really savings and they're really great partners. So thank you, uh, U.S. Bank and Elevon. I also wanna thank uh, United Health Group as a sponsor of, our, uh, of today's event. Uh, you may have heard about the special pricing they offer on health insurance for members. But you may not know in the past year, they've expanded their solutions to help you and your employees stay healthy and be well. 
Uh, they have been great partners with us for several years now, and we're, we're very thankful for it. And like uh, many of you, um, workers are demanding healthcare more and more. And so our quotes and the demands to know what kind of programs we're offering is just going up every day. And so we are grateful to have good partners to answer those member questions. Also want to thank uh, our workers uh, comp program uh, partner, Earn West. Uh, they exemplify the word partnership. For nearly 25 years, Earn West has been helping employers um, like you save money, time, and frustration on their workers' comp programs. The association is really proud to partner with Earn West for claims managed services, and we're incredibly grateful for their partnership and sponsoring the events today. So thank you to those three co-sponsors. And um, while I'm doling out thank yous, I think that's a great entryway to introduce uh, our main speaker today. Uh, a lot of people wonder what the, the national groups sometimes do because they're, they're, they know personally their local association. If you ever doubted how valuable uh, having a national partner is, I think that question got answered this year in, in a strong um, hallelujah. Chip, you and your team have been amazing on the federal level, advocating for our industry, uh, fighting for benefits, talking about what we need to do. Uh, Chip Rogers has been the president and CEO of the American Hotel and Lodging Association since the start of 2019, uh, leading America's only national association dedicated to the interests of the entire hotel and lodging industry. In his role of, as president and CEO, Chip has led the AHLA team in the lodging industry uh, to incredible results for all of us here in Washington state. And uh, it's not even ending there. I know he'll talk about it soon. But Chip, we're also very thankful for all the work that you started on the Save the Hotel Jobs Act. And I, I know you'll talk about that more and we're proud to be partners with you and your team. So Chip, thanks for joining us today. Anthony, thank you. I, uh, I can't wait till we get to do this in person again. Um, I have been able to do a no, actually a number of in-person events uh, across the country. Started a few months ago, I was in South Carolina and spoke to their lodging association. And I recognize that different parts of the country are opening up at different times. I saw by your sign, you're hoping to get that done by June the 15th. We support you a million percent in that. Uh, but it also means that I get a chance to come to, to Washington, one of my favorite states. So um, looking forward to that opportunity. I'm gonna go quickly through this update and then we'll have a little bit of time to do some questions and answers. So um, if we could go to the next slide. All right, so this one is probably, uh, you're gonna find this interesting uh, in, and in a way it's rather historic. Um, there's no question that many times uh, our industry uh, is at odds with our industry's labor union. Now, of course, it's important to remember that uh, it's a small percentage of hotel workers that work in union hotels, but they do represent an important part of our industry and particularly in some of our nation's largest cities, places like Seattle, Washington. Um, this uh, last month, we came together with Unite Here for the first time on a national platform um, to support hotel workers. And I think that that's interesting and something to remember that even when you uh, are at odds with an organization or a political party or, or anyone, um, when you agree on something, it's incumbent if you're going to be of good service to those you represent to work together, even with those who you oftentimes disagree. And in this particular case, we and Unite Here fully agree that hotel workers deserve our support. Many of them have been without work for more than a year. And if there's anything that we can do to help support them, we should be doing all that we can do. So I wanna publicly thank Unite Here for their efforts. And we came together to help 
uh, work with members of Congress, particularly Senator Brian Schatz out of Hawaii and Representative Charlie Crist out of Florida, to create what's known as the Save Hotel Jobs Act. Um, this that you see here on the, on the screen was uh, an opportunity for us to have uh, what is probably the first ever joint press conference between the leader of AHLA and the leader of Unite Here in favor of the same issue. And, and I want to thank Dee Taylor publicly for doing that. Uh, we appreciate that. Um, and we had 40.5 million people tune into that in some form or another. So that was good. Let's go to the next slide. Because I want to talk about what the Save Hotel Jobs Act does. Everybody listening to me now probably is quite familiar with PPP and the incredible benefit that it provided in the first round, in the second round, uh, waiving the affiliation rule. Uh, in the second round, by the way, the second draw PPP, hotels and restaurants um, got 35% of average monthly payroll instead of that, uh, instead of that 25%. Um, and so it, it really, really, I should say three and a half times as opposed to two and a half times, it really helped. Um, and the, it was resources that kept many hotels open. There's no question about it. But what this bill will do uh, in, in much the same fashion, uh, it is directed uh, specifically to the hotel industry. And I'll walk you quickly through the mechanics here. Um, if we could go to the next slide, I think I actually have the, all right, let's go back to the last one. I apologize. I, I do a lot of these, but I haven't memorized them perfectly. You take three months of your choosing in 2019 and you compare that to th the same three month period in 2020. Again, you get to choose the months in 2019 that you compare to the three contiguous months in 2020. If the revenue at your hotel dropped by 40% from 19 to 20, then you qualify. Now we expect that's almost every hotel in America. Again, you're choosing the months. So as long as it dropped by 40%, um, then you would qualify. There are no hotels outside of that one qualification that are exempted from this. So whether you're pub publicly owned, privately owned, it doesn't matter. The money that you would draw is equal to three months worth of total compensation that you would have paid your employees during that three month period in 2019. Again, keep that in mind. It's equal to the grant that you would receive equals three months of total compensation to your employees in 2019. Once you receive that grant, you have nine months to then spend it on your employees that you have now or hire more employees, give them raises, whatever it takes. If you have to bring people back, but to support your employees. So three months worth of total revenue, nine months to spend it. No hotel is excluded as long as you meet the 40% revenue drop threshold. Um, and it's a grant, it's not a loan. So this is money that you can use over that time period. In addition to that, there's up to $25,000 in tax credits per hotel for anything that you're spending on essentially keeping workers safe, whether it be PPE, um, whether it be replacing your HVAC system, uh, the, the list is quite lengthy, but it's $25,000 up to, uh, per hotel. Now the total grant money, by the way, is all the way up to $20 million per hotel. Now, a vast majority of hotels are not gonna be able to qualify for that much, uh, but you can see the caps are, are, are pretty significant. Let's go to the next slide. So how are we going to make this happen? Well, the reality is it's not going to happen without you. It's going to take all of us. Uh, during this pandemic, we've been able to generate somewhere around 300 to 350,000 letters to members of Congress. We've got to probably double that, which means our entire industry must be engaged. Uh, we must be sending letters, letting our members of Congress know we want the Save Hotel Jobs Act. They need to understand we're an industry that lost $110 billion in 2020. 
Yeah, let that sink in. That's more than half of all the revenue the industry generated in 2019, $110 billion loss. The total of this package, which again is directed specifically to hotels, is somewhere between 15 and $25 billion, depending on how many hotels take advantage of it. But that's the range, and it's good to juxtapose that against the $110 billion loss uh, from the previous year. Let's go to the next slide. So how are we doing this? Well, of course, uh, working with the bill sponsors, the first place I went, and I know everyone on this call is going to say, yeah, uh-huh, I'm, I'm sure. First place I went was Hawaii. Why did I go to Hawaii? Because the Senate sponsor is from Hawaii. Uh, I'll be in Florida very soon to promote this legislation as well as our House sponsor is in Florida. But we're working with the sponsors and co-sponsors of this legislation to make sure that they and their constituents know what they're doing. 71% of Americans in a recent poll that we conducted support direct aid to hotels, understanding that our industry was hit first and hit worst. And so they understand that, that it makes sense that if, if the airlines are going to receive uh, federal assistance, if the independent restaurants are receiving federal assistance, if Save Our Stages, the live arts is receiving federal assistance, then hotels certainly deserve so as well. So here's the kind of the four major checkpoints of what we're doing. Um, we will supply any and all information to anyone who needs information on this, even down to the local level about what the job impact would be. And so please feel free to reach out to us. But um, this is what we do. We eat, drink, and sleep this thing 24-7, the Safe Hotel Jobs Act, and, and we certainly need your support. Let's go to the next slide. So um, one of the things that came out of the last CARES Act, and this is what passed um, not too long ago, um, was the employee retention tax credit. Now, this has become a huge problem for the way that our industry is structured. So if you're using a management company, um, in many cases, you're not qualifying for this because the management company is going to go over the 500 employee threshold. Uh, Congress is aware of this, and so far, they're just not willing to change it. So we need your support on this as well, because the ERTC, uh, when properly applied, is extremely financially beneficial to hotels. Um, we've told them again and again and again that, that they need to fix this. this is, this is no different than other third-party uh, hiring services uh, and, and, and employee management services. Uh, but so far, we've not been able to get it fixed. Um, and and this, is a, this is a big problem if you use a management company. But please know, this is not something we've just ignored. We are working on this constantly. Next slide. All right, unemployment insurance. Um, the reason I included this uh, is because Washington is not on this list. <laughs> and I want you to see what you're potentially missing out on. So we conducted a survey of all of our members. We do this on a regular basis. And, and we had about 2,500 respondents. And those who are in the polling business recognize uh, that margin of error is under 2%, which means it's, it's a fairly accurate poll. And so what we asked them was, do you need, uh, are you looking for employees? Well, 93% said, yes, we have current job openings that we're unable to fill. Of that 93%, 63% also said, we have so many job openings that it is restricting our ability to do business as we would normally do it. In other words, you're having to shut down rooms, not take business that you would otherwise take because you don't have enough employees. Let that sink in again. 63% of those hotels with job openings fall into that category. So as an industry that spent 13 months trying to find people to come into the hotels as guests, now we've spent the last three months trying to find people to service those guests, uh, and it's not working out as well as we would hope. Now, we surveyed those, those employers and said, what is the reason that your employees are not coming back or they are leaving your employment? 
Uh, overwhelmingly, the number one reason was the enhanced unemployment benefits. In fact, 71% of those folks that are looking for, for employees say that is the reason they're hearing from as to why people won't take jobs. 71% said the enhanced unemployment benefits. So as you can see right here, um, a number of states, uh, the governors have come out and said, look, I, I, we have a serious job crisis. And so we're going to stop with the the unemployment, uh, the additional federal unemployment benefits. This is not eradicating unemployment benefits in totality. It's just going back to the way it was before the pandemic. Uh, the governor of Alabama made a good case. She's like, look, my unemployment rate is 3.7%. I've got to do something to encourage people to take jobs. And so that was her reasoning for doing it. But you can see 21 states have now done that. If you look at the list in the middle, um, and this is one where I think uh, whether you're a red state or a blue state, every state should be part of this. All this does is go back to the pre-pandemic requirement that you are at least looking for work. It, again, at least looking for work in order to receive unemployment benefits. The president of the United States, President Biden said he supported that idea that you should at least be looking for work uh, if you're gonna receive unemployment benefits. And so Washington, as well as every state should really be on that list in the middle. And then some states have really gone out and said, you know what, instead of rewarding people for not working, we're going to reward people for working. And so they've created a bonus structure uh, to assist people uh, and give a bonus to those who actually go back into the workplace, which I think is, is a fairly good idea. All right, so let's go to the next one. Again, um, here is where the country is on a state-by-state -state basis with respect to liability protection laws. Um, this was a federal issue, if you recall, before the last last election. When I say the last election, I'm not talking about the presidential election. I'm talking about the two Senate races in the state of Georgia that flipped the power in the Senate from Republican to Democrat. The reason I mention that is because um, the previous majority leader, Mr. McConnell, had made liability protection uh, kind of his line in the sand. It was the thing he said that we're only going to negotiate a deal if we get that in order to get people traveling again and to protect businesses uh, who weren't doing anything other than assisting uh, the, their guests and their consumers uh, and, and, and doing what they can possibly do to protect people from COVID. Once those Georgia seats went to the Democrats and the, and the Senate flipped, it meant this was no longer a federal issue. It wasn't going to happen uh, in Washington, D.C. The chances were between zero and zero. And so it became a state issue. And we've been working with state legislatures across the country uh, and governors to help make this happen. You can see the green states there. Um, that have um, adopted this. Uh, interestingly enough, the one state in blue, Missouri, it's been passed by the legislature. The governor's not yet signed it, but it is his legislation. It was what we call in the business a governor's bill. So he will be signing that soon. And then we believe the state of Texas, um, it is moving rapidly through Texas legislature as well, and that's gonna happen. So you're gonna see a little over half the states have this. Uh, almost every state has at least introduced it. Uh, we don't expect it's going to play, pass in a place like California or Oregon. Um, but the reality is this is a really important topic to get people back to business travel. Again, when you wonder why businesses aren't traveling, part of it is a fear of lawsuit. And so if you can protect businesses in this way, um, you're going to get business travel happening. Again, we heard from so many CEOs that said, we need this protection if we're going to put our people back out on the road again. So um, I think this legislation is going to be very, very helpful uh, to getting these economies, at least in these green states, uh, opened up and running again at full speed. Next slide. All right, per diem rates. Um, sometimes people say, well, is this really that big a deal? 
it, yes, it is that big a deal. Um, in addition to all government travel using per diem rates, it's important to keep in mind that many private sector industries build their per diem rates off of what the government is doing. And so last year we had these two gentlemen right here, one Republican, one Democrat, uh, both from the great state of Florida, introduce and pass legislation for us um, that got the per diem rates frozen and they're attempting to do it again, uh, making sure that these, what we would typically say are below market value compared to previous years prior to the pandemic, below market value rates are not baked into the system moving forward. Um, so freezing these per diem rates uh, will inject millions and millions of dollars into the hotel economy. Next slide. A lot of questions every day on masks. What is happening? Uh, well, as most of you know, we created the Safe State Guidelines. I want to thank Anthony and, and, and his team for being part of this. Um, we brought together all the major brands, the major ownership groups, um, Ecolab, who, as you know, sells more supplies to hotels uh, for cleaning than any other company in the world, um, independent hotels by the thousands, brought them together to create Safe State Guidelines, which were the cleaning and safety guidelines for our industry. Uh, a few months ago, when we saw there was a challenge with what was happening inside of hotels with people wearing masks, uh, the safe state guidelines included mandatory wearing of masks in public spaces inside of a hotel. Well, now the mask mandate uh, for vaccinated people has been lifted by the CDC and the safe state guidelines reflect that. And so I want to be real clear about that. For vaccinated guests inside the hotel, outside the hotel, the safe state guidelines uh, have been removed uh, or removing the mask mandate. Now, any state and local guideline, of course, uh, it, it has primacy here. So if you're in a state or a city where you must wear a mask, there's nothing safe state guidelines can do about that. Uh, but we wanted to make sure that the industry was aligned. And we want to thank all the brands and large ownership groups from align, aligning around these guidelines because we think it's critically important. Next slide. Anthony mentioned it a moment ago, one of the first things I did when I took over as president is say, guys, we have a gaping hole. We have an enormous hole in supporting our state and local lodging associations so that they can do their job better than they're doing it now, giving them the support they need, the support they deserve. So we're bringing best practices to the table. We're bringing resources to the table, both financial and now human resources to the table to help Anthony and his team. What can we do to support Anthony so that when he is working on issues in Washington, uh, he can amplify his work to do even more good. So we have taken our team from one person who represented the country uh, to now five. And by the end of this year, it'll probably be seven. Um, and this is, the, th this is the importance that we believe our state and local uh, associations, state and local advocacy means for our industry. We truly, as an industry, must be coordinating amongst ourselves. Um, this idea that there's 50 silos and one group working at, in Washington, D.C. is not a recipe for success. What is a recipe for success is bringing all of us together to work on common issues, recognizing that something that's happening in Washington today may happen in Virginia tomorrow and vice versa. And so if we are able to share those best practices, delegate resources to places where there are hot spots on legislation, use the tools that we have, bring uh, ownership groups into working in places that they haven't done before, highlighting brands efforts in certain places. If we're able to do that all the way down to the local level, we are gonna be so much more effective. And this is a passion of mine. I think it's the right thing to do. Uh, and keep in mind, we're not trying to get ahead of what Anthony and his incredible team are doing. We're trying to support so they can do it even better. And we're trying to do that all across the country. Next slide. 
Part of this is the creation of the American Hospitality Alliance, which brings AHLA, AHOA, state lodging associations together with the brands, with the management companies, with the ownership groups. We've pledged a lot of money to this effort um, so that we are spending our, our money and resources in the right place, recognizing certain hotspots on common issues. Um, if I can defeat a really bad piece of legislation in Arizona, then maybe it'll never come to Washington. If I can support a really good piece of legislation in Washington, then maybe we can take it to Tennessee. And that's the idea behind this, is bringing together our industry in a way that all the stakeholders have a voice and that we can properly spend the limited resources we have to maximize our effectiveness. Next slide. Grassroots campaign. Um, look, you can see right there in the middle of Hotels Act, I'm gonna talk more about that in just a second, but our Beyond the Beltway publication hopefully is something that everybody is reading. This is our effort to inform you about what's going on outside of Washington, D.C. and some other places. So please read that. And if you've got interesting things to contribute from Washington, we are more than happy to include it so other people can see all the great work you're doing. Next slide. And this is it for me on the slideshow. Um, my only ask, and it's a simple one. You know, I mentioned earlier about how we're going to get Safe Hotel Jobs Act passed. Well, it won't pass if we stay silent. We absolutely need your voice. We need everybody that you know that supports our industry to sign up for this. Just go to hotelsact.org. It is free, and I'll repeat that again, it is free. It takes about 90 seconds to do this, and it is incredibly helpful to our industry. And by the way, we don't use this only for federal issues. We can use this at the state level. If we are able to build, and by the way, we have about 60,000 people now signed up, but if we're able to build this grassroots army, even inside the state of Washington, that is an army that we can unleash uh, at the direction of Anthony to help with state issues and local issues, something happening in Seattle. As an example, we did this in Maryland uh, a few months ago when there's something happening at the state legislature. And if I had tried to use Hotels Act two years ago in Maryland, I might've generated uh, at most 500 letters. Uh, this time in Maryland in a 48 hour period, we generated 17,000 letters. 17,000 letters to the Maryland legislature. Now you think about it, that can move the needle at the state legislative, uh, during the state legislative process. So please sign up for Hotels Act. Um, it is again, free, it's simple, it takes about 90 seconds to do it, and it truly makes a difference. And Anthony, I think that's it. I'm glad to take any questions and answers. Great, uh, well, well, thank you so much. Um, I haven't had a chance to meet Jason yet. I believe he just started, but Troy has been great to work with and uh, and we've really enjoyed working with your team. And and, and then I sincerely mean the partnership uh, with the two organizations has been great. So uh, getting a handful of questions in here um, and all of you who have my cell phone, stop texting me because I'm not checking it right now. I'm doing a good job <laughs> of paying attention. Please put your questions in the Q&A or in the chat. Um, let's start with, uh, oh, my, my, here we go. Um, let's start with a question about CMBS. Uh, has there been any progress on the federal level for providing uh, relief for hotels with CMBS loans? Um, let me start with that. It was a two-part question. Let me start with that part of it. Yeah, you know, it, it's uh, an incredibly difficult issue. And, and Anthony, as you know, measuring progress in the world of advocacy is not uh, not so black and white. So I'll, I'll take a minute to answer this because I think it's really important. Uh, this answer translates to so many other issues. First of all, no one in Congress knows what CMBS is except for Van Taylor, a congressman out of, out of the state of Texas. Now, why does Van Taylor know it? Because he's a Harvard-educated banker 
who used to work on CMBS workouts back in 2008, 2009, 2010. He came to us and said, look, let me be your guy in Congress to explain what this means to other people. So the first step for us was an education process and getting members of Congress to understand what is a commercially mortgage, commercial mortgage-backed security and how that difference from different differentiates itself from a traditional loan. Second part of that, of course, was getting legislation introduced. Now, no one thought we were able to do that, but we were able to do that. We got a lot of sponsors, both Republicans and Democrats alike. Now, what did that do? Well, that got the attention of the CMBS world. Uh, they don't like having a spotlight shown on them. Uh, and and I'm not, I don't want to portray them as a bad partner. People use CMBS because it's a good tool that helps our industry grow. And, and so we're not enemies to those in the CMBS world. Uh, but we do recognize in a situation like the pandemic that the assistance from the CMBS world was nothing like what we were seeing from traditional lending. And so what we thought was going to be a massive amount of delinquencies uh, and, and foreclosures um, didn't turn out as much as we thought. One of the reasons was CMBS, uh, and, and I hate to describe it as CMBS lenders because people who use CMBS understand how it works, uh, started to get the message that if they're not flexible, a little bit more flexible, a little bit more understanding, um, then legislation could be enacted that impacts them. That's the last thing they wanted to have done is to actually be regulated because they're largely unregulated right now. And so we began to see them behave in a different way. Now, is that universal? Is the, is the CMBS originator that you're working with, are they acting in the same way? It may not be, uh, but across the board, we did begin to see more flexibility, uh, much fewer uh, foreclosures than we thought. Um, and so that's a good thing. And so I would measure it as a partial success. Um, there's two ways to go about this. We believe that the administration can handle this. We don't believe that you actually have to have a new law created, which is very difficult. Uh, but so far, the new administration has not been willing to entertain that. The last administration wasn't willing to entertain it either. So it's not a partisan issue. Um, and so we're continuing to work with Congress. Hopefully the bill will get reintroduced again. Hopefully we'll have all of our co-sponsors back. Um, but right now the situation is not as bad as we thought it was going to be, uh, but it's still a very dangerous situation because of the way that CMBS financing is structured. Okay, thank you. Thank you for answering that question. Um, I think you already talked about all the ways you're, you've been providing relief to the hotel industry on the national level, and we do appreciate that. Um, another question uh, that we received is uh, an operator opened a brand new hotel in April 2019. So 2020 was better because uh, it was a full year open, even though 2020 was a horrible year from their projections. If they open a brand new hotel, do they still qualify for the 40% drop requirement? Yeah, they can. There's a way to, uh, it, 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 it gets a little technical inside the language, but we we, we accounted for that uh, when working with the authors of the bill, and there is a way, and uh, if you just send me an email offline, I'll have my team send you the exact way to do that. Uh, again, the bill's, <laughs> we've got a long way to go before it becomes law, but you need to know about that, and the good news is, yes, you would qualify. What is the timing on the, the, the act, um, if you have your way? What, what do you probably think is, we need max momentum from when to have it be part of what timeline? So let me take you back a little bit because I often not also get the question of why did it take this long to get a, an industry specific piece of legislation introduced? Um, we were being told by members of Congress all along it, before the last election, 
don't do anything industry specific. We're not going to support it it's outside of the airlines. The airlines was the one group that, that, that uh, they, they would support because they look at that much different uh, than they do hotels or restaurants. And so we did, uh, we put our eggs in the basket of PPP and, and look, the second draw of PPP, we were able to get a lot more for hotels and restaurants than any other small business. And that was good, 40% more. And, and that's the direction that Congress gave us. Um, when the new administration came in and the new Congress came in, um, we were like, okay, we, they, they actually encouraged us. They're like, do something specific for hotels. We did. However, there was one caveat to that. Nothing was going to get introduced unless we had the support of the Hotel Workers Union. And so we had to then work with Unite here, um, which again, is not normally who we work with. And, and I want to thank them publicly. They've been very good to work with. It just took a really long time for that process to play out. And so we finally got the bill introduced. We're in the, right now we're gaining co-sponsors. We need some Republican co-sponsors, uh, but we're continuing to gain co-sponsors. We're continuing to talk to people that would uh, eventually have this legislation added to a larger piece of legislation. So it's probably going to be one of the president's uh, primary bills that, that this would get attached to. And from a timing standpoint, you're probably looking at middle of summer, best case scenario, end of summer, uh, middle case scenario, not passing at all, of course, would be worst case scenario. Thank you so much for, for answering that. I, I've got one more for you, because I think we've uh, run the member questions. Members, remember, if you have any questions, put them in q and I'm also checking the, the, uh, the chat room just in case you hit the wrong button. Um, but let me ask you, uh, you've done such a good job so far. If you were to come back and visit us in a year, outside of passing the, the, the Save the Hotel Jobs Act, which would be tremendous, um, what else would you hope to have uh, marked up as industry wins on the federal level uh, by, let's say, a year from now? Well, that would be uh, th th that would be first and foremost. Uh, I think on a number of issues, we're really playing defense, particularly around labor issues. So if we can stop the PRO Act, which is uh, maybe the worst piece of legislation that I've ever seen. Um, unfortunately, I think uh, your two senators there in Washington are co-sponsors on that bill. Um, it is the ultimate wish list of everything that uh, organized labor has ever wanted in the last two decades. Um, it is a terrible piece of legislation. So if we can stop that, I think that's a victory for us. Um, so in many ways, uh, tax reform could be devastating, especially if they get rid of the 1031 lifetime exchange, uh, raise the corporate taxes. Um, all those things would be would just be devastating to the economy and, and to our industry in particular. Um, and then on the positive side, if we can get international travel going again by creating relationships, and I think the administration is doing a good job of, of pushing that envelope, uh, I, I would count that as a win. But, you know, setting aside the government for a second, um, just as an industry and, and as people, as we move closer to the point of herd immunity with the combination of people that have been vaccinated and the people that have already had the virus, um, I think we have a real opportunity to accelerate that timeline that many uh, had predicted would take us all the way until 2024 for full recovery in our industry. I think we can shorten that uh, by a year or so um, if we get these, if we, between the vaccines, the herd immunity, the use of technology to get meetings going again, uh, the reopening of offices is absolutely critical. I don't know what it looks like in downtown Seattle, but here in Washington, DC, we're just now getting going. We at the HLA office just this week reopened our office uh, for people coming back into the office uh, on, a, on a regular basis. And, and that's really important for business travel. And so if we're able to do those things, I think we can shorten that timeline from 
2024, beginning of 2023 for full recovery. But it's going to take a lot of effort on all of us, um, looking at best practices, using the technology that is out there. One thing that, that I guess is most frustrating to me, and, and I, it, it's, it's almost shocking that we as the American people are, I guess, uh, this dimwitted at times, right? Um, if you think about private sector compared to public sector and how they, they look at adopting things to improve efficiency and improve performance, if you just think about our industry uh, as an example, take any major brand. If another brand does something and it works, well, that, that brand is not doing it. They're going to adopt it quickly because if it's working and it's helping them make money and it's helping to expand their business, they're going to do that immediately. But think about how governments are operating. Think about what the 50 states have done during this pandemic. You can look at red states and blue states and you can say, okay, you know what? They're doing something good over here. They're doing something bad over there. And you should set aside who the politicians are and just say what practices are working and what practices are not working so that I can help my state. But unfortunately, what happens is if you're in a blue state, they look at a red state and they say, well, it doesn't matter if it's working or not. That's a red state. We can't copy that, which is the dumbest thing ever. And vice versa. Red states may look at blue states and say, well, that's a blue state. We can't do what they're doing. That is so bad for the American people. And it's so wrong. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And so that is the one frustration that I hope all of us wake up to and send a resounding message to our elected officials. You know, 95% of the things they work on are probably things that most Americans agree on, irrespective of political subdivisions, right? Work on those things. Get those things done. Stop worrying about red and blue. We're all red, white, and blue. That's what this is all about. And, and, and come together and work on things for everybody that you represent. Man, if we could get that mentality back, uh, boy, who knows what we could accomplish. So that's my soapbox moment. And thank you for letting me stand on that box for a couple of that, That's a good soapbox. I think we're all kind of ready to say, you know what, let's be one country again. Amen. Uh, versus all this division stuff. So I, I, we really appreciate that. You've been great. Do we, do we have time for a couple more questions? How are we doing on your time? I probably got one more, and then I actually have to go get on an airplane. One more. I'm going to ask my staff to go ahead and, and paste in the, the question of where can we find out more information on the on the Save Our Hotels Act bill. Um, and so if my team can paste that into chat, I will ask the question on um, one more CMBS question came in. Um, CMBS servicers have been relatively patient so far, but now they're getting very aggressive and they're starting to proceed towards receiverships and foreclosures when the industry and most markets haven't yet been able to have a full summer of revenue since 2019. Uh, what can be done to ex encourage CMBS to extend their patience? <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, again, without getting into the difference between CMBS and traditional lending, which I think most people understand, um, it, it could be that political pressure again. I mean, the last thing, if you're in the CMBS world, the last thing you wanna have done to you is, is to be regulated. And so I think if you overplay your cards and you start foreclosing on people at the very moment that they know they're coming out of it because you want to uh, swoop in and take an asset that's now going to become valuable, that's not going to look good. And that's just inviting regulation. And so where we see this happening or where you see it happening, please let us know where we see it happening. We will document it and we'll continue to try to, to put on that political pressure because sometimes the threat of legislation or the introduction of legislation is almost as important as the passage of legislation. Uh, to get people not to do things that they ought not be doing, like foreclosing on hotels at the very moment that they know that hotel is starting to recover. Um, so we'll, we'll keep it up and please keep us informed about those things you're seeing in the marketplace that don't make sense and that we ought to address. 
Well, that that is a deal, and we will let you know as we're hearing things here, and we'll feed it up nationally. Anything you want to close with? You've been great with your time, and we really appreciate this. Any final thoughts before we let you go board your plane? <laughs> My final thought is uh, thank you. Um, there's no way we could all get through this together unless we were all in this together. Um, we, me and you, Anthony, uh, and everybody listening to me, we're part of the best industry in America. Think about what our industry means, whether it's a wedding, a family reunion, a high school graduation, bringing people together, old friends together. Um, it just means so much in the fabric of every community across this country. And it's something that I'm proud to work for, and I know you're proud to work for, and that so many of you make possible. So thank you for that. Uh, if we can get through this, boy, we can get through anything. And so looking forward to many, many, many brighter days ahead. We'll be there right with you. Thanks again. Have a safe flight. And uh, we'll look forward to when we can actually have you out here in Washington State. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Uh, Want to move on to the next part of our agenda and uh, introduce uh, Chase, o Chase Osher, uh, the Senior Business Development Executive with STR. Uh, Chase leads STR's hotel business development team. Uh, while focusing on the western region of the United States. Chase is responsible for growing STR's network of hotel partners and strengthening their overall data set. Uh, and uh, Chase, when we came together and merged with the Restaurant and Hotel Association, um, I was just immediately impressed with the great partnership we had uh, with, with, with STR and, and, and all the work that your team has done in working with our industry to, to help build better understandings and get great information. So. Uh, thanks for all the work you've already done at this point in being a great partner. And uh, with that, I'll let you start your partner or your uh, presentation. Well, thank you, Anthony. And I really do uh, certainly appreciate having the opportunity to present today. And as Chip said, I hope that uh, we can all be together uh, as one in an event very soon. So before I get started, uh, Matt, I just want to, oh, okay, I can do it now. So sorry. Okay, so we should be able to see the screen now. And I will begin. So again, like I was saying, thank you so much for allowing me to be here. And uh, as we go through the slides, I just want to say that what you're going to see is we're going to talk about the total US as well as Washington and the sub markets. We'll then move into the uh, pipeline, because I think it's very important to see what's going on. And then we'll also uh, talk about the forecast. And so uh, just uh, sort of food for thought here is that for those of you who don't know that the um, performance data that you're going to see is source data, it comes from a lot of the, the people that are on this call. And so it's very important to know that this is from our data partners and we certainly appreciate the data partners. And it's, it's just like Chip said, you know, he wants to do their part, they're doing their part. This is how we feel like that we are the partners with the industry as well, providing with you uh, the most updated data possible. So it's uh, very exciting to finally be at a point where we can look to um, some positive data in a sense. And again, what we're doing and what you'll see throughout this slide is, uh, this deck rather, is that we're gonna look at 2021, we're gonna look at 2020, in 2019, sort of all lumped together, but also look at some index. So as you can see here, some high, some high notes, um, as you see on the far right, the ADR, that's 80% of what the ADR was in 2019, right? So that's the index there. Um, again, as we're just looking at high points here, the room demand, 
Um, you know, the previous month was 67 million. Uh, you saw that jump up to uh, almost 80, uh, almost 90 million. So again, one of the other things here is the in-construction rooms was 190 uh, the month prior, and now 184,000 rooms in construction. We're just continuing to see those rooms in construction across the U.S. Uh, sort of uh, slow, but there still are quite a few as we go through the slide um, in certain parts of Washington and still several in final planning. The next slide here is looking at, um, again, it's nice to finally be at a point where we're not looking at a bunch of negative uh, percent changes. Again, you'll see on the far left, uh, the actual numbers, again, high points here, looking at the occupancy and you'll see standard. And then you'll see at the top there with room supply, TRI, that's total room inventory. What we've had to do um, in 2020 is sort of separate it out so that total room inventory would be those rooms that are actually open and operating. And then standard is actually uh, taking out those rooms, right? or I'm sorry, rather standard would be taking the rooms that are temporarily closed offline. And then total room inventory, we would be assuming all rooms are open and operating. So what we're seeing here again is occupancy above um, 50%, which is exciting. That's you see as the notes here, that's the first time since uh, February, 2020 that that occupancy number has been over 50%, sliding down to ADR at $106, again, highest since March of 2020. And again, if you see the index there, um, 80 and almost a little bit over 80% um, compared to 2019 uh, KPIs. Uh, Revpar, sort of the laggard in the group to come back in any downturn, again, at 64% of the index in 2019. However, that is still the highest that we've seen as an industry across the total U.S. since February 2020. And just to, again, put some numbers there, um, you know, it's really exciting to see that, again, you all have lived it, but being in SCR and seeing the data come through and presenting, it's nice to finally be at a point where, A, we're not benchmarking against 2019 versus 2020, but also we're seeing the industry really start to recover um, quickly in some areas. And then now starting to, as you all are starting to reopen, um, it's really, really exciting. And we're, we're happy to see these numbers start to move in the right direction. This is a 12 month moving average. So again, just adding in um, those 12 months, again, we're sort of seeing the same sort of set here where that index is, is higher in the ADR. Um, again, occupancy there, we, again, using that standard where we're taking out um, the, the, the properties that have been closed. Again, that number would be higher now that, that, um, that you do have those numbers out, but we're starting to add, uh, going back to the total room inventory as properties begin to reopen full time. And just to look across, and I always look at this slide and think, man, I remember pre-COVID, standing up on stage or having a presentation and saying, wow, you know, we were hitting this monstrous record of 115 months in a row of, of positive red part change. And then obviously COVID hit and we hit another record, which was the lowest red part change in the history of STR. So over 30 plus years of reporting on data. And it was, you can see there on the screen there, uh, down 80%, right? And we started to see it climb back up. And it dipped a little bit. Well, now obviously we're seeing a very, very uh, aggressive charge in the right direction. And like I said before, uh, we're seeing uh, that that percentage change uh, at 58%. So 
exciting to see. I know all of us uh, at SCR, um, again, having gone to the extreme of arguably the best year ever in 2019 to then 2020, and now starting to see 2021 and seeing those numbers come to fruition is, is very exciting for all of us. Now, this goes back to what I was talking about earlier with the standard occupancy and, again, the total room inventory. Far left, move our green. Again, that's taking out the temporary closed rooms in the inventory. And then the total room inventory is assuming that there are no closures. And so just like I talked to you earlier, that occupancy would be much higher than the total room inventory. However, we're starting to see those numbers come back uh, above 50% on both accounts. And we should see those numbers sure up together as there won't be any more temporary closed properties, hopefully in the very, very near future. Just gonna take a quick look at the class review again across the total US. This is looking from left to right, luxury all the way down me as some of you may already know, we classify properties um, by class by using an average of the ADR in specific areas and then the total US here. So we always like to see sort of how they're playing against one another or how they're performing against um, like classes. Like we talk about the far left being full service and the far right being more of the limited uh, service class that really outshine in a lot of ways, um, in all the ways uh, in 2020. And you still see that um, today. Um, again, as you look at the darker green being 2021, the lighter shade 2020, and then the very, very light shade 2019. Um, and we're getting close, uh, especially on that limited service side, um, where you look at uh, the upper mid scale, the mid scale, the economy, really uh, starting to get closer and closer to where those 2019 numbers were from an occupancy standpoint. Now, again, as we look at the ADR, same story here, 2021, 2020, and 2019. The real story still is, and I've outlined it, uh, where supply growth um, and the lack of groups, you know, that really sort of drive um, the upper ups uh, and the upper mid rates, uh, they're down, right? And so, as we can see here, mid-scale economy, luxury, they're all ahead of 2020, but we do see um, that middle bunch there still behind 2020. As things begin to continue to reopen, a lot of things that Chip was saying about the employers um, feeling comfortable, the events, uh, groups feeling comfortable, we will certainly hope to see and would suspect that number, those numbers to find both on an occupancy and an ADR. Just one more slide here on class. It's just taking in the year-to-date data, you know, adding in the few months for, uh, for total 2021. And it, it obviously does affect um, uh, the overall rate. So you should see this number, again, start to move in the right direction um, as more of those positive months come into play. But as you see here versus the last slide where there actually are no property or no classes that are ahead of 2020, Again, January, February, uh, certainly a little bit slower. March was much, much better. And then as we move into uh, the state of Washington and the submarkets actually had April data, which was newly released just a day ago. So let's talk about the state of Washington. So we see here, um, again, just like the total US, uh, more than half of the available rooms are now occupied. It's been a long time since I've been able to say that. 
Um, and so obviously we're going to see here on this screen some very aggressive uh, percent changes. Um, and that's why as we go through uh, most of the remaining uh, deck we'll add in 2019 and some indexes just so you can sort of see where things stand. And if you attend any other SCR presentations, um, you'll see a lot of that as we sort of compare more, hopefully not apples to apples, but a little bit more of a gauge of where things are uh, compared to they were in 2019. So again, all positive here. Uh, like I said, above 50% uh, in occupancy, ADR 96, uh, Redpar uh, $52, you know, compared to uh, this time last year, you know, we looked at occupancy was at like 24% and ADR was at $74. So we're really starting to see those numbers um, come up. And uh, that's it again, I keep saying this, but uh, uh, it's encouraging. And we look for those numbers to continue to move in the upward direction. So let's look at again, classes for the state of Washington. And here we see among the classes, you know, there are five that are actually above 50% in occupancy across the entire state. This is including every single area across Washington. No surprise that the economy mid-scale, um, you know, really economy uh, led the charge in occupancy in 2020. And that really was the case uh, in a lot of, uh, definitely in the Western region where we saw any bit of performance was coming from that economy and then it slowly moved into the mid-scale. A lot of that had to do with, as I'm sure you might've heard, but um, essential workers, uh, drivers still on the road. Um, a lot of um, leisure travel that was happening was sort of um, social distancing uh, with that in mind. So you saw that upper mid-scale, mid-scale class really sort of uh, stay strong compared to the far left where you saw a luxury class. Of course, we look at upper upscale and we know that there were um, a lot of properties that were closed in that upper upscale class, um, really just due to um, operating costs, uh, government um, regulations, things of that nature. So we'll see um, luxury and upper upscale uh, a little bit slower to come back from an occupancy standpoint, um, but uh, certainly we do see now uh, that upper up, upscale above 30%. So as we look at ADR among the classes, <clears throat> I think, you know, one thing that I always looked at in 2020 as I was presenting was that middle uh, sort of uh, mid blue shade where you started to look at between classes. So not only were classes competing against one another, but also cross classes, right? Across the classes are so all of a sudden, if you say, you know, um, in 2019, $94 really uh, was gonna get me a mid-scale tier class uh, property, right? As we fast forward a year, um, and again, with the pandemic, uh, that 94, if I stretched just a little bit, I was at $100, right? now for an upscale class. And if I wanted to take it just a little bit further, I could even go upper upscale. So really, truly amazing how, not in a good way, but uh, how, how all of a sudden mid-scale wasn't competing just against mid-scale and having to compete against upscale and even sometimes upper up. Well, we're starting to see those numbers uh, come back here, right, already in 2021, where you see that upper upscale at $130 and the upscale at 113. So again, those numbers will continue to climb. Um, most notably here, the luxury class, you know, 227 
2019. All of a sudden, now in 2021, ahead of what 2020 or 2019 was from an ADR perspective. And just to add in the last slide here, um, sort of high view is the rev bar again. We talked about sort of the last metric to really start to climb back. Um, again, I alluded to earlier, the full service really hit the hardest among all the classes in rev bar. We see that here, right? So um, still um, 2020, you know upper upscale, even the upscale class, um, certainly lower than, than most. Uh, but then as you fast forward, that upper upscale still slightly behind um, the other upscale and luxury classes. Again, the more the ADR is driving it, the occupancy will certainly start to see RevPAR come back as we know those, those two metrics play off each other. And I should say that we will make this presentation available to everyone. I know there certainly is a lot of data being shown and a lot of data, data available. And it's only gonna get more and more as we go into the, what we classify as the Washington state market. So what we'll start off with is the total market. And then we'll actually look at performance and break it down a little bit um, by each sub market. So again, Washington state market, this is April data um, for the month of April, 2021. Again, far right, you're seeing those, you know, uh, in some cases, uh, almost 300% change in the room revenue, right? So um, again, at that 30 point, almost 31 million in room revenue. And again, as you just start to break these things down, um, you know, how does that look like um, versus the year prior? And that's why you see that massive uh, jump. And so as we look at, even from an occupancy standpoint up 125%, um, and again, Last year, that, that number was around um, 25. So again, we're seeing those big, big jumps um, across the board here. So let's break out classes, or I'm sorry, let's break out the submarkets rather. And so we know this, the far left, these are the areas that make up the Washington state market. Using that same concept of 2019, 2020, 2021, same color codes, how did they perform among one another, right? And so you can clearly see that Bellingham Northwest and um, we see that Tacoma Olympia really leading the charge from an occupancy standpoint um, in 2021, right? And so I dug a little deeper into this and I started looking at the supply makeup, right? I started looking at out of the number of properties in the area and broke, breaking out by class, it became very apparent that these two markets that I just, uh, some markets I just talked about, had a much higher number of limited service properties versus the full service properties. Not to say they had the highest number of, of limited service properties across the entire market, but certainly um, within those two areas, they certainly outpaced the other. So again, going back to what we talked about earlier, the uh, limited service really dominating, if you will, in 2020 and still really carrying a lot of those um, occupancy numbers, it stood out. So again, we started to just dig a little deeper here and, and, and seen that. And, um, and so interesting to see as these properties begin to reopen, as um, lockdowns or, you know, sort of uh, mass mandates or things of that nature are being lifted, we'll see that higher end, the full service 
uh, properties start to come back uh, with a vengeance, I would imagine so. And as we look at, again, the ADR, let's take those two properties, right? So we have Tacoma and uh, we had uh, Bellingham, right? Well, as you can see here, they also uh, had the highest ADR. So driving that occupancy, driving the ADR, not always the case, really. A lot of times you'll see, as you all probably obviously know um, from firsthand, um, is that you know start to see uh, reduce the rate a little bit to drive the occupancy, and certainly not the case in Bellingham Northwest where you know the the sort of second, if you will, in the race here for ADR, um, and also uh, leading the charge on the occupancy. So just pointing some things out here, but across the board, um, what's exciting to see is that. Um, Exciting news as we as we see um, Washington State obviously being the, the one out of the group that actually broke 100 in ADR for the month of April. And so again, looking at the ADR uh, refar, again Washington State again uh, not the leader in occupancy, but certainly with that high ADR rate, um, leading the, the charge here on uh, the refar as as well at 63 dollars and ahead of 29 team number. So um, encouraging to see. And uh, really, as we see, um, all of the uh, submarkets were above 50%, um, at 50% or above in REFAR. So very, very, very good news as we continue to move forward in the recovery. Now on to the Seattle, Washington market. Again, we're going to sort of stay with the same format and start to look at um, how things play um, among last year, and again, you start to see just like Washington's uh, state market where, you know, the room revenue over 200% and percent change, that room demand the same, uh, the supply, uh, you know, really starting to see um, those major, uh, you know, big double digit numbers in supply because we're starting to see those properties reopen. And not necessarily, uh, there's a mix of construction properties that are coming open and operating, but certainly uh, has a lot to do with uh, properties being being reopened. So again, just wanted you to take a look here and see uh, how the total market was performing. You know, slightly below the 50% mark on the occupancy, uh, but certainly very, very close. And again, up 121% from uh, just a year ago where that number was at 20, uh, slightly, almost 21% occupancy. So a big jump there. And um, from the ADR perspective, $96 a year ago, 82, but as you look at 2019, it was around 146. So still quite a ways to go, but heading in the right direction as we continue to say. So here's how we break out the classes, or uh, again, I keep saying classes, I apologize, break out uh, the submarkets. These are all the submarkets that make up the Seattle, Washington market. I don't think there's anything that really stands out here. I mean, um, you know, Seattle, CBD, um, you know, again, with the dark green having the uh, lowest um, occupancy sort of in the way the trend has been across the total U.S. where a lot of those properties uh, were closed or there was, there was no group travel, there was no shows, there wasn't any entertainment. Um, so that's why you saw that number at um, you know, near 12% in 2020. But again, big jump uh, already uh, from just a year ago. Same story holds true here, uh, where we see um, 
Seattle North and and Everett, and then Kent Renson have the uh, highest occupancy. And I'll just point out again that as we started to sift through the data and the, the supply and the inventory, uh, we did notice again that um, they had sort of a very, uh, as you look at sort of how things weighed out, a higher percentage of the limited service properties versus the full service properties that were open, uh, as well as full service properties um, versus the latter. So again, no surprise here that they would be leading um, in the occupancy from across the entire market. And then as we move to ADR, again, uh, we see here that two submarkets have actually moved past the, the $100 mark. Um, and that's the, again, Seattle CBD, which no surprise typically would always sort of carry the, the highest ADR, certainly off from where it was in 2019, but certainly moving in the right direction from 2020. And again, very encouraging again to see that um, two properties above that $100, $100 mark. And again, as we look at sort of how um, the occupancy standpoint from the previous slide, here's a little bit different story, um, slightly where, you know, Kent Rennington has the lowest um, ADR, right? But again, had one of the highest occupancies. And then really, um, as you look at uh, the second group, which was that Seattle North Everett, you know, obviously just a little bit behind the, the Seattle or a little ahead of the Seattle airport as far as ADR goes, but um, still sort of plays in line with uh, the occupancy being higher and the, and the ADR being uh, just uh, sort of in line or a little bit lower uh, than most. But in this case, really sort of in line with, uh, with the rest of the group, uh, with the exception of the CBD and then uh, Bellevue. From a red part percentage, again, um, we see uh, here that we only have one submarket that was above uh, that 55 or that $50 red par um, total for the uh, month of April. Uh, again, that Seattle North Everett, go back to, had the, the, one of the highest occupancy rates. So, um, and then had a, had a pretty comparable ADR rate amongst the rest of the submarkets. So, uh, certainly no surprise that they're leading the charge there. Again, with that lower amount of occupancy with Seattle, the CBD really had the you know higher rate. Again, we see that um, that ADR down thirty eight dollars amongst the rest of the group. But again, uh, certainly up from the twelve dollars it was last year. They obviously have ways to go to get back to where it was um, in twenty nineteen, and that's really the case amongst most. And that's why you start to see when we go into the forecast where. You know, there's some areas, and that's why I think it's so important to sort of break out the submarkets and classes, because there are some submarkets that continue to perform very well and classes that perform very well. But as a whole, that's where you'll start to see, even when we look at the forecast, looking at that index um, compared to where we were in 2019 and how it could take a number of years to maybe get back there. So let's look at pipeline now. We'll start off with, again, the total U.S., and then we'll dig a little bit deeper um, from the state of Washington standpoint. So, like I said earlier, the, um, you know, in construction uh, continues to be uh, down year over year. Uh, so here, obviously, story, same story um, in March, uh, again, with the 184 properties in construction versus 2020, where there were 215. A lot of that's just, just carryover from, um, you know, March, obviously, was sort of right when everything hit. There was sort of a lot of properties still in construction and had to sort of sift through 
um, what uh, developers were going to do from a planning, final planning. So that's why you start to see that um, in construction, that final planning um, taper off. The planning, a lot of those properties that were deferred um, are starting to sort of come back into play. So we should see that planning number, uh, that final planning number rather start to come up from where it was um, as we start to benchmark against uh, the previous months of, of COVID going in throughout 2020 and into 2021. But still, uh, still 632 total projects under contract right now. And here we're just looking at sort of a, a period of time from left to right. We know that April 2020 was sort of the peak of uh, the in-construction rooms at 220,000. Um, and then we started to see that number drop off and then it came back up. And that's why I started talking about the deferred and um, what ended up being abandoned, uh, a lot of the projects. And currently now, just to give you some sort of perspective, in March 2021, there, are, there were uh, you know, close to 184 total uh, thousand total rooms that were still in that construction. So still rooms being built. Um, and we suspect that number, especially as we look into more of the state of Washington, that number decline from a local level. So what's the makeup again, right? So out of all the total rooms in construction, 69% are really dominated, dominated by that limited service. So you go back to the performance, you go back to what's being built. You can see here that upscale, upper midscale, um, way ahead of, of all the other classes as far as rooms in construction. Um, we're starting to see the upscale, upper midscale climb back. We saw some of it in late 2020 and still continue to move forward. And as those, like I said, those groups start to come back into play, um, start to see performance come back uh, in a very, very, very strong way. This is just to show you sort of out of the properties that are um, in construction, what is the makeup? We talked about class, but you can see here that again, uh, the big six, uh, the brands here really sort of way ahead of um, all the other um, properties that are being built in a big, big way. So sort of the dark color here, 82% of all of the properties being built are that IHG, IHG Choice Hilton, those branded properties. And as you move forward uh, to the next slide here, what a change that was from 2010 to 2020, where, you know, there were, uh, wasn't equal, but certainly much closer than it was uh, in 2020, where, uh, and that, that really shifted big, big time, where that was 84% of all the rooms that were in construction were, again, those, those major chains. This is what I was talking about earlier, about sort of keeping an eye on the, you know, finger on the pulse, if you will, on knowing sort of what's in planning, what's in final planning, what's in construction, what truly comes open and operating. And, you know, we can say sort of over, and it may change now, but over the lifetime, just looking at over an extended period of time, rather, that once it went into in construction, it had a 96% chance of being open and operating. And again, that number starts to go down, as you would imagine, um, from there, from the final planning, but still, um, from a long, long-time play there, 76% uh, of those final planning properties actually ended up moving into construction and then being open and operating. So as we keep that in mind, and we start to look at the Washington State um, market, this is the makeup here. So there's 11 projects currently in construction, eight in final planning and 19 in planning. And just to give you a little bit more of a breakdown there, the in construction rooms, three of those properties are upscale, five are upper, upper mid-scale, 
and two, our mid-scale. So right in line with what we talked about earlier from the national viewpoint. Um, and then from a final planning point with, with eight, um, we have uh, you know, one being upscale, uh, which is good to see. Five, again, with that upper mid and two in that mid. So some of the, it's gonna keep with that same trend, you know, minus I guess that one, uh, one upscale property, but the same trend as what we saw before. But again, we start to see the double digits still in construction and in planning from a Washington state market standpoint. And then as we move into the Seattle, Washington market here, again, um, planning leading the way with, with 19. And again, just like I did for Washington state as we sort of break down the, the uh, in construction rooms, a little bit different, obviously, from what we saw in Washington state where um, one of the properties is luxury, one is upper up, two are upscale, and then one is upper mid. So a little bit of diversity there across the in construction projects. And then from a final planning point, uh, kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Eight of the projects are upscale, four upper mid, and three mid scale. So a lot of moving parts going on. As you can see, 39 total projects uh, that we're tracking right now under contract in the Seattle market. And next we'll move to the forecast. Again, like I said, we'll make this slides available to you all. There's a lot of verbiage here to see, but these are just some assumptions as we move into uh, the, the forecasting that we have available. And it has a lot to do with uh, the vaccines and corporate travel and leisure travel and corporate travel and how those sort of play into the performance, a total US perspective. And so here we start to see, you know, um, the, the double recovery, right? So we're saying initial phase, um, you know, moving to the right, secondary phase, final phase. Um, hopefully this, this stays uh, true. I know from an SDR perspective um, that we are hoping to have or planning on having our big hotel data conference in August and it being an in-person uh, event. And I know there's certainly others that are happening. I was invited to uh, attend an event in Los Angeles in August. So really exciting. I feel like this is um, uh, going to come to fruition. Obviously we have great partners in tourism economics that, that we work with closely to come up with this. So as vaccines continue to, to go out and if there's excitement around the, the, the possibility of being open, you see those uh, vaccinated numbers start to climb, which then certainly have a direct effect on how the performance of even the hotel industry is, is doing. And so this would be the uh, index of uh, how we feel that again, taking the numbers that we have now and looking at the demand, the occupancy, ADR, REPAR, how do they play off each other um, indexed against uh, 2019 uh, being sort of the starting point there at 100 on the far left. And it's like Chip alluded to, you know, we're certainly tracking that just from an ADR perspective or from a REPAR perspective that in 2024, we would be right at that um, 95, a little over 95% um, index against uh, 2019. So really getting back to where we were. Um, but again, like Chip even said, could be sooner, you know, as, as more things start to open, as there's more uh, grants or help and vac vaccinated uh, people. I mean, we certainly see hopefully corporate travel, group travel. We certainly are big fans of hoping that that number uh, is pushed uh, ahead of that 2024 uh, target right now. As we start to wrap up here, this is looking at, uh, again, some, uh, some actual numbers. 
um, far left 2020 was actual, 2021 is forecast, and of course 2022. Again, this is taking into the fact that um, uh, with no, assuming no temporary hotel closures. So encouraging to see those numbers continue to move upward, you know, slight movements, if you will, in some cases, again, across the total U.S. from what 2021 hopes to be, hopefully even better as we will uh, more than likely do a reforecast. But when you look at the far left and then look at the far right, some major jumps there from an occupancy standpoint, uh, especially from a red par standpoint. So um, let's hope that that is uh, even better than what we have forecasted. And then as we look at percentage change numbers versus the prior year, again, start to see these you know, big, big numbers in 2020 um, from, a, from a negative growth standpoint besides supply, which we really certainly did not want to happen, right? But it did, and we knew recovery would come, and we're hoping that, that is, uh, we start to see that happening now. And so you then start to see um, those big jumps in 2021 and 2022 from a percentage change standpoint. Um, and we do see supply, um, not as big of a jump from where it was the prior two years um, at just up, you know, slightly under 1% increase um, from 2021 to 2022. But like I said earlier, the occupancy way up, the red bar numbers way up. So very, very, very encouraging. And I just want to thank you all for allowing me to come and speak today. And um, hope that I can continue to be a resource, SCR can continue to be a resource, and we will make this slides available for you. Chase, thank you so much. Um, Matt, I know we were trying to keep it to 90 minutes. Do we have time for questions or do you want me to uh, um, have people put questions in chat and then we can re reply on a follow-up? What would you like to have me do? Uh, we will reply on a follow-up. I think we should move to Katie. Great. Well, Chase, again, thank you so much for your partnership at SDR, and uh, we'll follow up with you if there's any questions along the way. Um, Absolutely. Thanks so much. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Uh, Katie, um, you, the, the uh, association lobbying team did an incredible job this session. I want to be proactive in just saying thank you in case we, we hit our clock here at the end. Um, and a lot of that was lodging related, um, and it will help a lot of our lodging members. So Given the time, I'm going to not talk and just say thank you for everything and let you take over. Thank you for the introduction, Anthony, and thanks for everyone for sticking around to hear a brief session update. Uh, this year, uh, we hope to we hope that the state legislature would have a relatively narrow focus um, in terms of what they plan to work on in the 2021 session. Uh, we had heard that their intent was to focus on COVID relief and response statewide, uh, to focus on climate change, which is a priority of Governor Inslee, to focus on uh, issues related to equity, and of course, to balance uh, the state budget for the upcoming biennium. So with that in mind, uh, we, we also tailored our legislative agenda and focused it, focused it uh, primarily on relief, recovery, and the necessary relaunch of our industry. As you can see, we were pretty stinking successful in terms of completing our legislative agenda um, and pretty much did everything we wanted to do except for um, hospitality-specific B&O tax relief. So I'm just going to highlight about 10 of the bills that I think are the most important for the hotel industry specifically and make sure that you know that your team was working hard for you and did a pretty good job. 
So the first bill that we were able to pass this year, um, and it was the very first bill passed and signed by the le legislature, was Senate Bill 5061, which provided $1.73 billion in unemployment insurance relief um, to all employers um, in, uh, in our state, um, specific to 2021 unemployment insurance rates. Uh, the very last bill or one of the last bills passed uh, during this session was another bill in regards to unemployment insurance rates, um, but specific to the 2022 rates that you'll be seeing. So uh, Julia, our Director of State Government Affairs and the business community worked really hard to lower unemployment insurance rates um, and did that through both of these measures and do plan to work on continued relief in the upcoming legislative sessions. Another bill that was one of the final bills passed by the legislature was House Bill 1332, which provided the ability to defer property taxes um, for the April 30th property tax deadline um, and allowed our business owners to go on payment plans without needing to pay the usual 12.5% insurance or interest and penalties on that uh, property tax payment plan. We did run into a little bit of opposition um, as we worked this bill through the legislature um, and were unfortunately didn't pass it in the timely manner we would have liked, but were able to give operators about two weeks to apply for payment plans um, prior to April 30th. Another bill that was passed at the beginning of the legislative session was a, a license renewal fee waiver. So uh, the average hotel, uh, liquor license is about $2,000 and this bill waived that $2,000 fee from April 1st of 2021 um, and will continue to waive the fees through March 31st of 2022. So while a small bill in terms of uh, what hoteliers pay, um, it was a little bit of additional assistance in terms of liquor license fees. I think one of the biggest issues for all of you was uh, the role that the eviction moratorium play, played for unpaid hotel guests. And we were able to work with the proponents of the eviction moratorium bill to redefine how a tenant was defined in the current legislation. Um, we were able to remove hotel guests from the definition of a tenant um, and allow operators to give seven day eviction notices to tenants that weren't paying. Um, this, this bill I think is probably where we're the most frustrated still today. Unfortunately, the attorney general's office is not interpreting an emergency clause in the way that we all interpret an emergency clause and how the legislature intended it. Um, in, an, in a normal world, an emergency clause means that as soon as the governor signs the bill, uh, the bill in its entirety goes into effect. Um, and that would have meant that the new definition of a ten of tenant uh, would have applied immediately. Un unfortunately, the attorney general's office is interpreting it a bit differently and is not allowing us to remove tenants that aren't paying until June 30th. We are continuing to work through this issue and get them to interpret it the way that everyone else does. Um, but until we have a, a different answer from the Attorney General's office, unfortunately, we cannot evict until after June 30th. 
we were able to secure $12 million in uh, tourism marketing, which was uh, the request from our government affairs committee. Um, and we were excited to be able to relaunch tourism back into our state, both for interstate tourism and out of state tourists and are continuing to work on tourism marketing efforts now that we have secured those finances. Specific to Seattle, we were able to change how um, lodging tax assessments are assessed in the city. Uh, there was an audit in 2019 of a local Seattle hotel um, that determined that taxes needed to be paid on top of the tourism promotion assessments. We were able to pass a piece of legislation that removed that additional tax and also was retroactive. So for any hotels looking at an audit and that had been um, told they needed to pay sales tax on top of the tourism assessment tax, um, that was removed and, and no longer a concern. So exciting for Seattle specific hotels. One of the other bills that was brought to our attention prior to session was House Bill 1069. The Association of Washington Cities had proposed um, flexibility for uh, several different local taxes, but really did focus on lodging taxes um, and had intended to uh, pass legislation that would allow them to take lodging taxes and use them for other city projects and um, resources. We immediately went to all of you and said, we need your help and issued an action alert to the Association of Washington City's Legislative Committee, uh, telling them to please fix and amend the, this legislation before it was officially um, introduced or heard in committee. They said, no, thank you and um, proceeded with the legislation that included um, being able to sweep lodging taxes. Uh, we fought that very early on in session and asked the committee to please amend the bill to remove that flexibility, and they did so without any hesitation. We do feel that this bill and the property tax deferral bill, which um, also received some pushback from cities and counties, um, are two areas where we're going to need to continue to work with local uh, hotel and restaurant operators to make sure that local jurisdictions understand how devastated we've been by this pandemic and do not introduce legislation that's more harmful to the industry and then also um, are a little bit more supportive of their local businesses. So that's something that we'll be working toward um, in this interim prior to the 2022 session. And then lastly, we were able to for, I believe the third year in a row, may have just been the second, uh, defeat the key TAM bill. So House Bill 1076 would have allowed third party relators or um, employees to file lawsuits um, on, to, uh, on your business um, if there was a perceived labor law violation or workplace safety violation. Uh, this private right of action was obviously highly concerning for us um, and our members. And it's something that we're continuing to see in pieces of legislation uh, year after year. So we also plan to work in the interim to edu better educate our elected officials on private right of action and how it impacts our businesses and really demonstrate how many laws our businesses already follow and how um, 
much power our workforce already has in terms of making sure that they're receiving fair play, fair pay, working in a healthy uh, workplace, et cetera. So uh, another area we will be working on and you'll be hearing from us uh, in the interim on how we can better educate lawmakers in this arena. But uh, defeating KETAM yet again was a big exciting win for us towards the end of session. So it's just a short overview of the major pieces of legislation we were able to pass or kill or amend on your behalf. Um, the list is far, far more extensive than this and will be, uh, I believe, published in a legislative review coming up within the next month. And with that, I don't think we have time for questions, so I'll pass it back to Anthony. Okay. Uh, Katie, I'll just, uh, and I can have your back with this one because I know you weren't directly involved. Um, one of the issues, because CMBS came up a lot earlier in the federal thing, we tried to solve it here. I pretty much gave up my entire Christmas vacation trying to get work with the governor's office to get them to, to fix this. Um, are, are you up to speed on kind of where that ended and or do you want me to kind of take that one? That is all you, Anthony. Okay. We did try hard to try to get a CMBS fix. We tried to follow Oregon's lead here. We did work with the uh, governor's office. And then when the governor's office in late February, early March, uh, decided that they were going to take a pass, tried to scramble to get the legislature to take it up. Um, and unfortunately, while we got some momentum, we couldn't break through in time to get it a part of that. So uh, for those who asked CMBS questions, we did also try to work on it here. We're continuing to try to work on it here um, and going back to the governor's office. And uh, we're just going to keep fighting. So uh, difficult loss, and I know it's impacted many, and uh, uh, we were frustrated as well. But a lot of wins to go with it, Katie. Thanks to you and all your team. I don't see any questions in the Q&A or the chat. Um, and so with that, um, I want to thank everyone for being here today. I want to thank our sponsors uh, in uh, U.S. Bank and Elevon, in Healthcare Solutions, and in Earn West, and you, all of our volunteers, all the people who called a legislator, who spoke to the media, um, who gave us advice on how to prioritize and sat in through hours of government affairs meetings. Um, we're your association, and uh, it doesn't work without your involvement, so thanks for all that you do. Uh, let's hope we're open. Let's hope that the uh, your rooms are full come July when we are, and uh, we'll move forward from there. Thank you everyone for all you do. It's an honor to serve you. Thanks for listening to the Washington Hospitality Industry Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, wahospitality.org, where you can learn more about the restaurant and lodging industries and the Washington Hospitality Association. Be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or iHeartRadio so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Thank you so much for that effort. Until next time.